We are back in 1 Peter together this morning um, as we're working our way through this letter uh, that Peter, one of Jesus' uh, original 12 uh, apostles, uh, was writing to a group of churches in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. Remembering these churches are suffering persecution. Uh, it's not uh, uh, massively uh physical and widespread yet. Remember, most of the persecution that they're experiencing is verbal taunts and ridicule, shaming and mocking. Uh, But Peter is writing to prepare them to stand firm in the grace of God in the midst of the suffering that they may and will experience. Uh, And these same things apply to you and me uh, as we are seeking uh, to stand firm in the grace of God faithfully depending and trusting in Christ and following him, no matter what comes our way, even if it means persecution for living a righteous life for Christ. Uh, Last week, uh, Peter is addressing uh, the fears that we may encounter as we think about this life of of suffering and persecution that may lay in store for God's people. Uh, This morning, uh, as Peter continues to, to point us to the grace of God and the, the worthiness of Jesus. Um, he's continuing to, uh, to begin to shape our hearts and our motivations that we would understand more fully and more deeply why. Why should we suffer? And that we would, would want to and see it as a, as a privilege uh, to suffer for our Christ. So if you would, uh, look with me in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at uh, verses 17 through 22. Going back to verse 17, just to pick up our context for this, uh, this section. Uh, if you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 1016. So if you would, uh, give your attention to God's word for us this morning. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. And we recognize and acknowledge that Uh, Unless the Spirit is at work, uh, we can read and pronounce uh, words and explain passages, but you must apply it and dig it deep into our hearts. Uh, And we ask that you do that this morning. Uh, For the sake of Jesus, we pray. Uh, Amen. So notice, again, remember in this context what Peter is telling us that it may and it will for, for many of us uh, be God's uh, purpose for us in our lives that we may have to suffer for doing good, for following Jesus, for honoring him 
as our Lord and our King. Um, why should we suffer? Remember the way that, that Peter has been describing it, uh, that as we're to, to live out this cross-shaped life, this Christ-like life as we endure suffering, um, that it will mean that we do so not in retaliating, uh, not in, re- in returning uh, taunt for taunt or threat with threat or violence with violence, but entrusting ourselves to, to Jesus and enduring. How, how do we do that? Notice where Peter roots it as he uh, points us in this passage, beginning with the gospel. Why should you suffer for doing good? Notice what he says in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He roots it in the gospel. He says, do you not want to know why? What your motive should be for suffering in the face of unrighteousness? It's this, that Jesus suffered and died. He suffered and died for you. Notice what he says. The righteous one for the unrighteous ones. Jesus suffered for sins, not his own. That's been clear through, uh, throughout 1 Peter. That's clear throughout the scriptures. Jesus died an innocent man. He was guilty of no sin. We want to talk about someone who suffered unjustly at the hand of unrighteous people It was Jesus. And you know whose sins he suffered for? Your sins, Christian. Mine. Because we rebelled against him. There is not a righteous person in the world that Jesus suffered for. If you think you're righteous, if you think you have it all together, Jesus' death was not for you. He makes that clear. He came for the sick. If you're sick, if you're hurting, If you're dead and you need a deliverer, Jesus came for you. He suffered and died to deliver you and me from our sins. Peter says, you want to know and understand why we, as we're called to suffer, we should should pursue this and suffer for doing good? It's because Jesus suffered and died for your sins, for my sins. But but notice, it's, it's not just that. Peter's beginning to shape our, our attitude and our, what our response should be towards those that are persecuting us. Um, remember, as, as we looked at, at Peter's life, our, our first response when we experience suffering and persecution for following Jesus may be in fear to run and flee. Peter and the other disciples did that in the garden. Uh, it, it, it may be uh, to, to use your, your words to threaten back, or to use weapons or violence to respond and to kill before you're killed. Peter tried to do that. His aim was off. He only got an ear. It it may be to lie to protect yourself. But here, Peter's saying no. No, we need to be prepared to suffer. How does uh, uh, this... Guy who before professed that he would never abandon Jesus. How would a guy who at first would attack rather than suffer unjustly at the hand of sinners be willing here now to say we should suffer for, for righteousness sake? 
because he understands now fully the significance of the death of Jesus for sinners. Remember, this is the Peter who rebuked Jesus when Jesus was talking about that he would need to suffer and die and rise again. And Peter says, I understand it now. The death of Jesus is at the heart of it all. And if we are going to live out the Christian life, we must understand the significance of the fact that the righteous one suffered for us. But notice what he says. Why? Why did Jesus suffer? In verse 18, that he might bring us to God. Jesus suffered for your unrighteousness and mine. But the motivation, the goal, the intention, the purpose to bring us to God. Jesus suffered for the sins and suffered under the sins of unrighteous people in order that under his suffering, they would come to faith in him and be delivered and redeemed and saved. What Jesus is, is, and Peter is calling us to now is in the midst of our suffering to take on the same motivation that Jesus has. Do you want to know why you should be willing to suffer silently without responding and to suffer patiently waiting on your God? Because just like Jesus desires the, the, the salvation and deliverance of sinners, we should too. Because just as Jesus suffered that he might bring others to God, we, not that our death or our persecution will save anyone, but through the way that we suffer, through the way that we respond in faithfulness and hope and trust in Jesus, through the way that we live not responding and reacting to their persecution and their taunts, but continuing to love them, to suffer for them, that they might come to know Christ? How can we do that? You're telling me I got to put up with their mouth that was already enough, Jesus. You're telling me I might need to lose a limb or a job or a reputation or a, a life? That's going too far. But now you've really gone too far. That I also should desire and long that they would come to deliverance and repentance and be brought to God? How am I going to do that? Only if I understand the significance of the death of Jesus that I am an unrighteous one. And apart from the righteous one dying for me, I have no hope. I did not deserve it. Back in around World War II, uh, a guy named Eric Little was uh, uh, captured by the Japanese in China. You may be familiar with that name. Uh, Eric Little was a, a sprinter for, uh, from Scotland. The movie Chariots of Fire was based on his life. Uh, but the movie Chariots of Fire ends where it gets really interesting for Eric. Uh, he wins the gold medal in a race that he really wasn't supposed to run anyway, which is a, a story for another time. Uh, but uh, he passed up a life of fame and fortune in, in England for being this Olympic champion. And instead, he goes to China to take the gospel of Jesus to the Chinese. When he's there, World War II breaks out. 
The Japanese began to invade China. He sends his pregnant wife and his two children back home. But he doesn't go. Why? Because the Chinese need to hear about the life and death and resurrection of Christ. The Japanese capture him, other, some other missionaries, other, uh, other people there in China, non-Chinese, that they, they put into this internment camp. Uh, and as they're, they're suffering under the, the persecution of the Japanese there, everybody who comments on how Eric Little lived was amazed. They said he was the, the most humble, selfless, sacrificial man they had ever seen. The author of the biography that I'm reading now said, uh, unless you go back and read the accounts and hear firsthand account of the way that Eric Little lived his life, you think they would make it up. He lived with grace and kindness and tenderness to everyone in the camp that he was there. He gave himself up until he died of brain cancer in the uh, uh, in the, the camp, serving and giving himself for everyone who was there. And it didn't matter who they were, Christian, non-Christian. In fact, a, a, a prostitute that they interviewed uh, said that uh, Eric Little came into her room to build her some shelves. And until he came into her room, no man had ever entered her life without wanting something from her. And yet Eric Little came in and served and gave himself for her. And it impacted her drastically. Not only did, did Eric care for the, the, the people who were fellow uh, slaves and captors, uh, captives with him, he also, every morning and every night, prayed for the Japanese soldiers. As he would communicate and proclaim and preach the gospel weekly in the little services that he would hold, as he looked for and cared for and prayed and sought the deliverance and the redemption and the salvation of the Japanese soldiers who abused him and the other prisoners in their camp. How is this possible? How could a man suffer like this and yet pray for, live a life that desires to see them come to faith in Jesus? It's because he understood the significance of the cross and who Christ was. We may think this is remarkable. Eric Little, an extraordinary man. And it is which is sad. You know why? Because what Peter says here is this is how all Christians should live. This shouldn't be extraordinary. Because of what Jesus has done for us, our lives should be transformed in such a way that we live a Christ-like and cross-shaped life no matter where we go. And that means longing for and desiring the repentance, the deliverance, and the salvation even of those who hurt and wound us. But how will this come about? What, what difference will it make if you or I live this way and communicate and interact with sinners like this? Well, Peter continues to go on. Because not only do we need to remember and recognize that Jesus suffered to save sinners, but we also see that God is patiently calling sinners to repentance through his people. We are the means by which God redeems and saves sinners. Notice, as we see God's patience, 
Peter points out here. Look in verse 20. Uh, We'll pick up back in verse 18 just for context, and I'll explain some of this uh, later. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Peter here is reminding us of the patience of God. Uh, He's pointing us back to Genesis chapter 6. Listen how Moses describes the world at that time. Um, In verse uh, verse 3, Moses says this in Genesis chapter 6, Then Yahweh said, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Then in verse 5, Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I'll blot man out whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In some ways, you could say this was the pinnacle of the rebellion and the sin of man. Our wickedness, our treason against our high king and creator. And God says, I am going to bring justice. I am going to punish you. But I'm going to be patient. I'm going to wait 120 years. God could have immediately wiped out humanity and been justified for doing so. In fact, he actually could have done it back in Genesis 3, but he chose not to. And here, he's waiting 120 years. As Noah is building this ark, it didn't take Noah 120 years, but during that time, God is patiently waiting. What is he waiting for? He's waiting for the repentance of, of rebels. He's calling them graciously to repentance. Notice how that comes out in this passage. Now, I will say, as a side note, a lot of commentators say this is the most difficult passage in the New Testament. Um, so, uh, in fact, there was one commentator I was reading this week. He had a, a 50 pages just on verse uh, verse 18. Uh so I'm going to give you my, uh, my understanding of what I think fits in this context to see, remember, in the context of persecution, of ridicule and taunts that the people of God are facing at this time, that Peter is reminding us to suffer and hope and rest in God. Here we've already seen Peter point out God's patience, but notice God is calling them patiently to repentance. Notice as it, uh, it, it sets this up in verse 18. Uh, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So he is put to death in the flesh. The flesh meaning the, the, the realm or the, the sphere in which uh, humanity's rebellion is going on. Under the influence and the, the, the power and the exertion of our, our will. But he's made alive in the spirit. And we know Jesus was physically raised, so it's not talking he was only spiritually raised. What it's talking about here is Peter uses that term in the spirit is talking about the realm 
or uh, the area in which the, the Spirit dominates in his power and his influence in the, in the world. So, Jesus was made alive through the power and the working of the Spirit in that realm. And it is in which, or in whom, in the Spirit, that he, had, that he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, when were they in prison? Well, they're in prison now. But when did he go and proclaim to them? Well, notice what he says. When they formally did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Peter's already prepared us for this understanding that Jesus speaks through his people. Remember back over in, uh, in chapter 1, in verse 11, he told this, that, uh, that the, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that's to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent, subsequent glories. So Peter's already preparing us and reminding us that, the, that Christ was at work through his spirit, speaking through the prophets, speaking about and prophesying and telling when he would suffer and die. And here, Peter is telling us that Jesus also was active. He was active during the time of rebellion when humanity was rebelling against God as he was patiently awaiting uh, uh, during the days of Noah. And it says, what was he doing? He was proclaiming. He was preaching. He was announcing the good news. Uh, Peter explains this to us in, uh, in uh, 2 Peter in chapter 2, verse 5. He describes Noah as this, a herald of righteousness. One who speaks and proclaims of what it means to follow, to depend, to rest and follow our God. So here, do you notice what's going on? God is patiently waiting. Why? Because he's proclaiming a message of repentance and grace through Noah. That as Noah experiences the taunts and the ridicule, what are you building a big boat for, old man? Where are all these animals going to come from? God's not going to flood us. We're in control here. Noah continued to faithfully work, resting and hoping and trusting in his God and proclaiming righteousness and grace, calling them to repentance, to turn from their sin and their rebellion and hope and rest in the God who patiently waits and offers grace and forgiveness to sinners. Is that true for us? Is God still working that way through us now? That as we suffer, as we live for Jesus, as we communicate and proclaim a reason for the hope that we have, remember that's what Peter told us last week, that is God still patiently waiting? Does he still speak through you and me as we proclaim the gospel to those who would persecute us? The scriptures say yes. Yes. Your God is still patient. Your God still desires sinners to come to redemption. And guess who he's going to use to bring them to redemption? You, his people. How are your persecutors going to come to faith in Christ? Through us, faithfully living like Jesus as he speaks through us. Paul explains it this way in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5. As he says this crazy statement. Listen if you hear some of the, the parallels. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. And here's what Paul says. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That means that you and me, as God's people, redeemed and saved by the blood of Christ, brought into his family, that when we are proclaiming the good news that salvation can be found only in Jesus, it's not just us speaking. It is God appealing through us to the people that we speak to. God is at work. We are his fellow workers, Paul will go on to say. Why should we suffer at the hand of sinners? Why should we not speak uh, ridicule back and revile back, but instead speak words of grace and mercy and that forgiveness is found in Jesus? Because this is how God has always worked. And this is why he's redeemed and saved you. This is what our salvation is for, to stand firm in the grace of God, hoping in Christ and communicating that message to others that even if they persecute us, that they might come to faith in Jesus. This, this is scary. You know that it could mean pain. It could mean hurt. It could mean death. Not just for ourselves, but for our family. Do you want to be sure that God is for us? Will he keep these promises of redemption? Will he ultimately save his people, even if we may be hurt? Notice, as Peter wraps up here, reminding us that we need to suffer because God keeps his promises. Look in verses 20 through uh, 22. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter is pointing us and directing us to the truth and the reality that God keeps his promise. What was God proclaiming to Noah? Noah, I am promising you that as you build this ark and as you look and you rest and you trust in me in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your persecution, that I will preserve and save you. You will be delivered as you look and hope to me and me in faith. And what happens? It says, They were delivered, Noah and his family. What happened to those who rejected God? They ultimately suffered. The flood is an early breaking in of the end time judgment of God. At that point, it's water. Later, the scriptures tell us it's going to be fire. But what do we see? God is able and willing to keep his promises to save and redeem and deliver his people from judgment. What about us? I haven't been called to build an ark. It hadn't rained in a couple of weeks here. Will God keep his promise? Did he use up all of his promising and his fulfilling of that in delivering these eight people? Is there enough left for you and for me? 
back in 1992, uh, Pepsi uh, was running this, uh, this ad campaign in the Philippines. And if you uh, undid the, 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 the lid on your bottle and got a, a certain number, I think it was 349. Nobody knew that at the time, but that was going to be the, the special code. And you would become a millionaire in the Philippines. That would be only a $40,000 error in, uh, in the U.S. It's still a significant amount of money. There was only going to be one person, though, who won. Pepsi was making this promise to everyone, buy our drinks. And if you get the winning number, you will become a millionaire. And guess what happened? There was a mistake. Instead of there being one winner, there were 600,000 winners. <laughs> Pepsi overpromised. They could not fulfill their promise. In order to pay back that, it would have been more than half of all of the income of the entire country of the Philippines. Pepsi would have gone broke. And so instead, they, gave a, they fulfilled a little bit of their promise. Everybody got about 20 bucks. Overpromise, underfulfilled. Our God is not that way. He never overpromises. He never underfulfills. He will always keep his promises to his people. And when he promises to redeem and save you, he will follow through with it. How do you know? How do I know? Look to your baptism, Peter says. Don't you know the promise? God gave you in your baptism? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as in a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying in this, these times of suffering, if you want to go to a place of hope and something to build up and strengthen your faith, look back to your baptism and the promises of God that were given to you when the waters were applied to you. Just as water cleanses, your conscience, your heart, your sins will be cleansed as you do what? Look and hope and faith in the resurrected Christ. As you rest and hope and trust in him, you will be delivered. You will be saved, period. God didn't print on accident extra bottle caps. Every single one of you who hopes and trust in Jesus will be delivered and saved because Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. He is the resurrected one. And if you doubt whether that the, the water, even if you were, don't remember it or not, I don't remember my baptism. I was only a couple months old. But I hear Peter pointing me back to it now. And I know what the scriptures tell me, that Jesus really rose from the dead. And the resurrected Jesus authenticates and confirms that every single thing God promises will come true. And in case you doubt, Jesus has the power and the ability to deliver and save you and me in the midst of a Japanese internment camp or before the world mocking us for building an ark or at the lunchroom table when the middle schoolers are mocking you or in your, lunch, in your break room at work where you are seeking to stand and honor Christ, and yet you're being rejected and turned from? Peter says, remember this. Who is this Jesus that you're hoping and resting in? He's the resurrected one. He's not just the resurrected one. He has gone into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all things. 
over all angels and powers. Everything's in subjection to him because he rules and he reigns. This is the one who is on your side. This is your king who gave his life for you. And now he's asking you to give your life for his glory and in hopes that others will come to faith in him. It's only as we embrace and hope in the Jesus who died for us in the God who is patiently working in and through us in the world and as we rest in his promises to us that we will be able to carry this out through the grace and mercy of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the gospel's true. Uh, we thank you uh, that we uh, do not suffer uh, for a myth, but that Jesus really did live die and rise. Uh, we pray uh, that you would continue to strengthen our faith, that we would be able to endure and stand firm in the grace of God, no matter what you will for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.